Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to a very special episode of the Built on Purpose podcast, where each episode I interview exceptional leaders, entrepreneurs, authors, philosophers, and straight-up interesting people to explore their outlook on life, work, and leadership. My hope for our listeners is that you can take away a special nugget of information from each of these interviews, something that will serve you and the people most important to you in pursuing a life built on purpose. My name is Brian Moore, co-founder and managing partner of Y Scouts, and today I'm interviewing Ann Rhodes, the current founder and prez, P-R-E-S, which stands for Person Responsible for Exceptional Service at People Inc. She's the former chief people officer at Southwest Airlines and one of the co-founders of JetBlue. In this episode, Ann and I talk about the importance of values and why leaders need to create a values-based culture. We also discuss the power of the millennial generation, the rise of gender equality and leadership, and the rising growth of new management models like Holacracy. I've known Ann for more than 15 years and feel blessed to have such an amazing leader in my life. I know you're going to enjoy her spirit, her wisdom, and her enthusiasm. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the one and only Ann Rhodes. Anne, I can't thank you enough for dedicating some time to spend with our listeners today. It's just such an honor to chat with you. And I want to kick things off. Um, values have obviously played just such a huge part of the leadership and the cultures that you've been a part of. And frankly, it's just completely embedded in your philosophy. When did you know, beyond a shadow of a doubt throughout your career, at what point in your career did you know that values are the most important foundation to lay for any business, regardless of its size, of its industry? You know, I think the first time that it hit me that it was value was probably when I was with Southwest because they're so strong. Southwest Airlines are so strong on values. And I had worked for some good companies prior to that time, but I had not noticed that they particularly were values driven. They had values, but were not particularly living those values. But at Southwest, where I saw that people actually lived the values they espoused, it became clear to me that that was very, very important to their success. And I believe today that it really ensures your performance if you have great values, of course, and if you live them. It's not just putting them on the wall. So, you know, the difference between just having a poster on the wall and decorating the office with uh, these words that end up meaning nothing uh, and those organizations that truly espouse the values, live them day in, day out. What's the difference? Like, wh why is it some companies haven't figured out that you can't just hang it up on the wall? You have to live it. What's the difference? What's the what's the trick for leaders out there that are trying to, to, to cross that chasm? I always tell people it's not a one-time event. There are leaders who believe, well, these are my values, therefore everyone will follow these values or they won't um, be part of the company. First of all, most of the time when they throw them on the wall, they haven't made sure that other people were part of that process throughout the organization, which helps validate it in my opinion. So many times it's thrown on the wall because it's simply words they think they should have on the wall, um, not things that are uh, really part of the behavior of the organization. So I really believe that people believe for a customer perspective, internal and external, that if you put words on the wall, that people will believe it. What people believe is how they see you act. They don't believe the words on the wall. We 
you know, in this country, we've become pretty distrusting, distrusting of many of our leaders. And so we now watch how they behave in lieu of just listening to them. It's not what they say. It's not what they put in the wallets. It's how they live. And we watch their behaviors. And the great organizations put words on the wall that really um, recognize the behaviors of the organization. And that's what's so critical. And so, you know, one of the things that uh, that you just mentioned is the the participation and involving more than perhaps just one individual or the senior leadership team in values creation. Um, is there what advice or, or what insight can you share around the appropriate time during an organization's uh, inception, its history, its growth, uh, and, and perhaps size? Like how many people should participate in a values creation project? So it's interesting. In very small companies that are startups where you have two to five people, or at JetBlue, for instance, when we had nine people, we actually created the values and the behaviors at that point in time. So we were lucky because we got to define those at, at our, really the inception of the organization. However, we have worked with many companies that are, some are 75 years old, like Loma Linda Hospital, and they wanted to Re, really re-energize and revisit the values there that they had had for many years. There are also organizations that are small to mid-sized who say, you know, uh, while we think we have values, we need to sit in the room with people throughout the organization, 20 to 30 people is typically the number that we suggest for large organizations. And those people should represent all areas of the organization. They should be female, male. They should be various age groups. They should have different tenure with the organization and be in different positions. But it should include the entire management team because obviously it has to start with them. But 20 to 30 is an appropriate number, assuming that you're a small to mid-sized organization. And also, if you're an organization that's come together from perhaps um, it's a merger, it's the result of mergers, and you've had two or three different companies. Someone I talked to yesterday had had a recent merger, and while one of the companies had had values, the other one they didn't believe um, was so strong in terms of having values. So they wanted to bring it together. And at that point, I would tell you, you should have people from both organizations also. Uh, Juniper Networks brought in people from all, they had bought, they had purchased 17 organizations and tried to put them together. And they brought in people from all of those organizations to represent that organization. The answer is you can do it at any time in your history. If you're lucky enough to do it when you start, it's probably easier. But if you're not, there's no reason not to do it at any point in your history and at any size, frankly, two people to thousands of people. Juniper Networks had thousands of people around the globe, and they were able to do it and do it very effectively. It just takes a little longer. So I want to go back to just for a moment, uh, your comment about Southwest Airlines, and, and that was really the first place that you you experienced um, values being lived day in, day out, guiding the behaviors of the organization. You know, you obviously spent some, some considerable time with likely one of the best leaders the business world has ever known and seen in Herb Kelleher, um, you know, to have that kind of access to his brilliance. Uh, and work with him as, as a gift. And, and I'd love for you to share with us, you know, perhaps some of the most important leadership lessons that you've picked up from Herb. And, and also, if you can share, you know, maybe some of a, a funny story or two that just is one of those uh, Herbisms. <laughs> 
There are many of those, I will tell you. <laughs> One sure. of the reasons fun, fun is a value for Southwest is because it started with Herb, and he was tons of fun, and he lived that sen- and used his sense of humor every day in addressing even the most difficult situations. You know, it's very interesting. Uh, people, I do believe he's probably one of the best leaders we've ever seen, but it's because it was intuitive to him. And living uh, with high integrity and living in a very difficult world, I would tell you, it is not easy to operate airlines. And particularly at the time Southwest started when the legacy carriers were so well known and Southwest was just a startup, it was very difficult to compete. But he did it in a way that I think today is probably trying to be, or people try to emulate across the world in terms of the way he did it. And how he did it was he defined the values that would lead that organization. And fun is a value with him. And he lived and breathed, though, the warrior spirit. He believed in the golden rule, and it was as simple as that. He never treated people in a way that he didn't want to be treated. And even when it was a case of you're not performing at a level where you could stay at Southwest. He took care of you on the way out like he took care of you on the way in. It was amazing how he cared about people. And he would go over, for instance, on the holidays, on Thanksgiving, and shoulder tap someone who was a, a baggage loader over in the air, in the airport and take his, his or her place for the day and let them go home with their family. Wow. He would do simple things. Yeah, it was just incredible. He would serve meals on holidays to the employees at the various sites. He would travel to the sites on a frequent basis. If he was on a plane, he's the one that always gave out the peanuts and talked to customers. He didn't like homogenizing information. On weekends, he would take home the toughest letters that were sitting up in the customer service area and answer them himself. And in fact, one of them is a great story. He had a a woman who said that she did not like Southwest colors of the plane. She didn't like the orange. She thought the red was ugly. She thought the whole plane was ugly, uh, the colors. And she also didn't like the fact that we had friendly flight attendants. She didn't like the call brands of the liquor. She didn't like anything about Southwest. She didn't like um, the fact that they didn't have assigned seats. So he said that he worked all weekend on trying to respond to her and came up with another five pages of why we did what we did. Um, (laughs) There was a reason for it. And he said, I finally decided that there was only one answer for her. And so I wrote her back, dear Mrs. Smith, we will miss you. Love Herb. (laughs) (laughs) She became a pen pal, by the way. She ended up loving him and flying us. That's great. You know, that uh, it's funny. That reminds me of just a real quick story. Uh, I had, the good fortune of seeing um, the uh, co-founder founder of Costco, Jim Senegal, I believe is his name speak. I, I hope I didn't mess that up. And uh, there was a bit of a, an uproar uh, among some of the employees, which came from customer feedback about the lack of a express lane or, you know, a lane if you're going into Costco and you just mm-hmm. need two or three items. Well, how can we get these customers through our lanes quicker? And uh, Jim said uh, to the employees at an all hands on deck meeting, something quite similar to your herb story in that, you know what our express lane is? Our express lane is, is when we see a customer who's got one of those giant pallet based carts and they've got what appears to be 800 to a thousand dollars worth of merchandise, you open up an express lane for them because that's who we are. And that's who we're here to serve. We are not the express lane type organization. And so staying true to who you are as Herb obviously did in that letter back to Mrs. Smith about missing her, you know, is, is some, is, the courage that that oftentimes is missing in leadership today. 
I totally agree with you. And I think over and over, another thing that he did, and a little known fact was Southwest used to have a list of people long before uh, we started having lists of people who can't fly for other reasons. He, they, we had a list of people who couldn't fly because they treated our employees poorly. Wow. And no other airline had that, to my knowledge at the time. Wow. 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 Yeah. I thought it was, and again, it was something that he decided to do. And I even saw him at a gate. He was with me at one time we were on a trip in California and someone was treating one of our customer service agents very poorly. And he actually pulled him on a line, told him he would personally buy him a ticket on another competitive airline, but he would not be flying our airline if he treated our people that way. Wow. Wow, that's awesome. He lived the values. Yeah. Um, he lived the golden rule, and he showed employees what it means when a leader exemplifies the values that they put on the wall. Well, and the and message that, that, that is sends, right? Yeah, I mean, you, 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 that employee who was dealing with this uh, less than uh, happy customer at, at the airport to see her do that, that spreads like wildfire throughout the organization that the leader of the, org- of the company is willing to stand up for what's right and live the values, even when it means potentially sacrificing revenue. Yes. That's awesome. I mean, it was, uh, and it was so, again, intuitive to him. And I think uh, for leaders that the values, if you're going to put them on the wall, they better be those values that you can le- you can live by and really are intuitive and they become part of the DNA and probably are part of the DNA before you even put them on the wall, a great leader. So integrity, you have to come with integrity. If you put it on the wall, hopefully you have it long before you put it in the wall. Sure. So but I really think that that's a great leader. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So you said, uh, you know, the airline business by no means is an easy business, probably one of the most difficult. Um, yet after your Southwest experience, you decided to help uh, start a new airline in JetBlue and were one of the co-founders of JetBlue. What, you know, what was that? What was the driving force for you and, and your fellow colleagues to start what is one of the most difficult businesses to start? What was behind it? So much fun. Actually, I always think there will be a better model for anything. So any time that you get to be part of a great organization, you know that great is a moving target. So great is defined as the latest experience someone had, and it was a great experience, right? But tomorrow it might be different. So I thought it would be wonderful. And Herb said, why are you, I saw him at the airport at Love Field once afterwards. And he said, why'd you do that? I said, because I wanted to do one better and do it in a very tough environment in New York, where I used to say that New Yorkers didn't love anything. Now they love JetBlue, (laughs) (laughs) but I used to think they didn't love anything. So it it was actually the challenge of it. And um, the result was that 17,000 people today are absolutely um, part of the organization and they all live and breathe the values it's a great interesting even though we've had some in fact today the news was about a JetBlue employee but you always have some negatives but it's how you recover I think also that counts but we recover using the values like we live using the values so um, I hear that one of our flight attendants today had a problem I, I hadn't seen the news yet. Well, I, I would. Yeah. I, I'm going to assume that uh, JetBlue will handle it like they have with any bit of adversity, with right. nothing but uh, transparency and class. We do, and that's what we do. We we literally live the values, um, whether we are handling a tough problem or just an everyday um, issue. And and those five values we have are critically important to us. 
And when we sat in a room and defined those 17 years ago, we said, what do we want people to say about us? And what do we want to do in terms of hiring people? So we also hire people with those values. And it's really important that when you have a values-based organization, you don't just put the words on the wall and think that becomes a culture. You have to work at it 24-7. And you have to work at it on a continuing basis. Whether you're a year old, six months old, or whether you're 25 years old, you have to continue working at it if you think it's going to stay alive and well. And it does have to become part of the DNA. So uh, I want to get back to JetBlue just for a second and, and to the inception of JetBlue and wanting to, to do what, what the, the version of great was going to be 17 years ago when it started. Was there a, a rallying cry or a true north or some crystallized statement that guided what JetBlue was going to be all about? Or was it just this general idea that, hey, we can, we can do what other airlines before us have done and simply make it what today's version of great looks like? We started with the purpose, and the purpose was to bring humanity back to air travel because at the time we had all been disappointed in some of the legacy models that were literally um, really all of a sudden acted like they didn't want you there as a customer. You know, you get in a flight and no one greets you. No one says thank you for flying. No one, uh, if you wanted a blanket, heaven forbid, or if you wanted a second Coke. Um, they were going to either make you pay for it or go work for it. But it, it really was incredible because all of us had had very bad experiences flying and we flew a lot. I flew a lot. And, you know, I think that we wanted to create something that was totally different. And so we, we used the purpose, which I think was brilliant of us at the time, though. At the time, we said, let's just keep it simple. And we didn't particularly call it our purpose, but it became our purpose. And that was to bring humanity back to air travel. So we weren't going to charge for every little thing. And we weren't going to make certain that, uh, I mean, we were going to ensure that you had blankets and that you had whatever you needed. For instance, our TVs are free. We didn't want to have our flight attendants have to charge you if you wanted to have a TV, if you wanted to have a program. Or Wi-Fi, Wi-Fi, basic Wi-Fi is free. If you want enhanced Wi-Fi or faster Wi-Fi, then you can pay for it. But most people fly with the basic Wi-Fi. But I really think that bringing humanity back to air travel as a purpose was part of our success because then we used that to test everything against. Every time we made a decision, we said, well, is this does this fit our purpose? And is this right for our model and our brand? It, it creates a really easy way to live in terms of the organization. To me, purpose is really so simple. It should be said very um, in one or two sentences, and it becomes so easy then to measure everything against. And it becomes, the, to me, the ruler of whether we're going to do something and how we're going to do it. So you shared with me an example uh, probably a year or so ago during the Great Recession time frame as every airline was having to figure out uh, how to cut costs, how to survive uh, some incredibly difficult business conditions, especially with the uh, pretty uh, uh, the rising cost of fuel and oil um, and and having this, very crystal clear purpose statement of bringing humanity back to air travel. You shared with me a story about some cost savings 
some initiatives, some ideas, some suggestions that had floated around the management table as you were thinking about how to make the decisions you as a, as a team had to make. Do you recall um, the story you shared with me um, that, that I'm referring to without giving it away about decision or a decision that you guys made to, to really uphold your purpose statement? During that time? Well, and there were a number of them. Was it the one on Wi-Fi or was it the one about every airline was letting people go? So that's an easy way to get your numbers, right? Yeah, it was the one actually, it, Southwest. Yeah, it was the one about uh, some of the amenities for the for the passengers, specifically regarding blankets. Right. Um, every airline, of course, um, doesn't ha- Usually, when you get on, they tell you you're out of blankets. They right. say we already given them, we've given them away, but it's only the second passenger. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Always, um, and so we said we're not going to do that. When people need blankets, we need to have them available. If they want a real heavy blanket, they can buy it. I mean, we can do things that maybe aren't basic, um, and they can pay for those. But basic amenities. If you want more, and uh, the other thing was uh, everybody was doing away with snacks. And instead, we offer a variety of snacks, and you can have as many as you want, literally. And you can have your choice of five or six of those. You can have as many drinks as you want that are the soft drinks or coffee or or tea. And you can have as many of those as you want. You can have free Wi-Fi. All these decisions were part of it. And, And it just seemed like it all got back to the purpose of bringing humanity back to air travel, which was so easy when you looked at the decisions. Like Wi-Fi, our CFO actually told us that it was a six-figure decision and if we were going to charge for wi-fi or not and we said but remember our purpose bring humanity back to air travel and should we make a our flight attendants have to go up and down the aisle and do it or should we just allow people to have that as part of their original price and of course the answer was it will be part it is something that we are going to give everyone it's part of the basic package which is again bringing humanity back to air travel in our opinion um, not not nitpicking everybody and charging them for every single thing that they use. I love and it. in fact, it's one of the selling points for JetBlue. I love it. I love it. You know, there's an argument in business that I've heard. I'm sure you've heard it as well. That that goes something like, you know, we can focus on building a great culture and and support the that great culture with great values. You know, once we're profitable and when we have the time and the money to focus on that. Why is that the wrong argument? Well, to me, you either live the values every day and you don't use the excuse that when we have the time and the money, we have had a profit sharing model similar to Southwest since we started at JetBlue. And I don't believe we've ever had a quarter where employees did not get profit sharing. If you always use the excuse that when we have it, instead of saying, how can we figure out how to do this, you have a different operating philosophy. And I think if you're going to have a a purpose that needs to apply to your people and figuring out a way to deliver on what's important to them every day, that's how they will deliver on your promise. And that's how they will keep your purpose alive and well. If you keep saying, well, tomorrow, tomorrow, no one's going to believe you. What they're going to believe is that if they serve on a committee to help you 
get to yes for an employee instead of getting to no all the time, uh, they will actually, even if you can't quite get where they want you to go, they will actually help sell that to your other employees if they participate in the decision. And we have people participating in decisions on almost every major decision that is made at JetBlue. Um, we involve people, we involve teams, we we involve people when we talk about where we're going, what the goals are. They know, they turn on their iPhone every morning and they see what the goals are. They see what yesterday's numbers were, what today's numbers are, the ones that they can affect. Right. You, you I've seen you speak uh, a, a number of different times and you are just an absolutely amazing uh, you're just an amazing speaker and it's always wonderful to hear you share your experiences and the importance of values. And, and as you've been touring the country, sharing your values message with leaders, what's the biggest pushback or area of disbelief that you consistently hear about your message, if, if, if at all? I think the pushback comes, it's interesting. Most of the CEOs want to do it. Now, they want to know how you do it, and I think you have to have a systematic way of building a values-based culture. Again, I think that having a system helps sell to CEOs. So the system, instead of just saying, well, we need a great culture, we need a values-based culture, their first question, and I just had this yesterday from two CEOs I spoke to last week in, in D.C., how do I do it? And how you do it is you use a very simple system for doing it, but you have to make sure that you it's a 360. So you have to have all parts of the system and you need to take your time putting it in, make sure that it's right for you, make sure that it's customized to your organization. But it can be done in any organization as long as the leaders don't just do it and give voice to it, but don't give any at all any effort or any really true um, to me, they have to become the first examples of living that that um, value, those values, and those culture, and building that culture. Culture to me is a collection of of behaviors of an organization. So they have to behave in a way that emulates those values. But the pushback I always get is, "How do I do it?" And so, or, or I've done it, but it isn't quite alive and well. And so then we give them some ideas on how to keep it alive and well. Well, and I would have to assume that, uh, you know, this is what this, 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 how do I do it question uh, is inevitably what led to your book built on values, uh, which I believe was released back in the early part of 2011, if my mind uh, is serving me well, uh, creating mm -hmm. an enviable culture that outperforms the competition. What, what, you know, writing a book is no small feat. Um, what was that the catalyst of giving business leaders the blueprint, the how-to guide to do what you have done so successfully throughout your career? It was. We we finally put it into an operational uh, model, and it we really it has five parts, and the book is a prescriptive on how to do that. And we have heard from, as late as yesterday, I heard from a CEO who said that his wife put it into their company, and she credits their company, um, which is a startup in the tech world, was being successful because of the model. But the point was to make it systematic and to make it prescriptive. And that's what the book does. It's a prescriptive for doing it. If you literally take it chapter by chapter, you can do it. 
and you will see that it's it's a system for building a strong values-based culture, which I really believe in. And I think that's the thing that sells most CEOs. If they know there's a systematic, measurable way to do it, and also that culture is not soft and unmeasurable, which people have thought for years. But, you know, if you notice the ads today on TV, I was I was listening last night and waiting for the news, and it was very interesting. Two or three of the ads talked about being values-based organizations. You know, with the, one was a um, car salesman. He was talking about the values of his car dealership. One was, uh, it was some other product. It was a, a product in the healthcare world, and they were talking about this is a very values-based farm company, pharmaceutical company. And it's very interesting. All of a sudden, values are getting to be the sort of keyword for messaging. Because I think that a lot of young people, for all we kid about millennials, whom I love, um, I think that they care about values and they care about working for an organization that mirrors their values. Yeah, you know, a lot has been made about the millennial generation and the generation following them, Gen Z, as I've heard they're often referred to. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I think, in my opinion, and I have a feeling you're going to agree that, you know, they've taken a bit of an unfair beating that they're entitled and they're lazy and they just, they don't want to work hard, this, that, and the other. And, and frankly, it appears to me that the younger folks that I've run into and have had the pleasure of, of being surrounded by are just the opposite. It's just the difference for them is that they, they've recognized their time here is short. And if they're going to spend it working on something, it's going to be on something that matters. And with people who share a similar belief as a belief system as them is, are you seeing the same thing? I love it. Yes. And what I love about them is, A, they came here to make a difference. If they can make a difference and you let them participate, they're going to stay. And if they cannot make a difference and you don't let them participate but you dictate, if this is a control and command environment, they are not going to stay. Yeah. And the great environments like Google get it. They give them a project. They let them participate. They let them work in teams. And guess what? The results are great. And not only that, I mean, I was at Google early, like seven in the morning. It was packed. They were all there. They had taken the early buses that Google um, supplies them from San Francisco. They were all there. And I mean, they were sitting in work groups, and I would be willing to bet you they're there late. So it's not a question of not wanting to work. It's a question of give them something that's valuable to do and then let them participate and leave them alone. Because these are bright, aggressive, enthusiastic uh, players. If you've hired right, I'm saying you, I'm assuming you hire right. And then what you do is you let them run with it. There's just, honestly, they are fabulous. Yeah, I agree. I totally agree. And I, I love them. Yeah, I, I think <laughs> it feels like for the first time in, in, in a long time, we've got a, a pretty sizable generation that is going to eventually become the majority of our workforce. If they're not already, I know there's some uh, competing studies out there. Uh, as soon as this generation uh, is in the leadership uh, ranks and dominating the leadership ranks. I, 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 I think it's it can't come soon enough because my optimism for what what they will do and the the values they're driven by and the difference in the world that they want to make is is awe inspiring. And I I simply I, I think we need it. We need it quickly. I do too. And I think that they're smart enough to see what the values are of an organization very quickly. And they either mirror those values themselves and believe in them, or they exit and go find a company that does live those values. Yep, absolutely. Let's talk about HR for just a moment. Um, obviously, <laughs> you, you've <laughs> you've spent 
uh, you know, the lion's share of your career in this field of people and as as otherwise known as human resources, which you and I obviously are, are not fans of that terminology. But that aside, um, you know, the world of talent, the world of human resources, the world of people has been under a bit of scrutiny uh, and, and frankly attack. I mean, it uh, donned the cover of the Harvard Business Review last summer that it's time to blow HR up and build something different. I'm curious, why do you think that the HR profession is being looked at so closely today? They care about getting to no rather than yes. So in most organizations, operators need you to get to yes. Whatever the issue, they need you to help them figure a solution. And instead of helping figure a solution, many times we tell them what the rules are. And so there's a book, First Break All the Rules, and trust me, um, Marcus Buckingham wrote it, and it's true. You have to not be rule-bound. It doesn't mean that you break any rule that is a federal rule or a safety rule or something that is negative in terms of operations. It means that you quit building these houses around you in HR where people don't want to come talk to you about their issues because you won't ever help them find a solution. And the minute they sit down, you should sit and talk to them and look, look them in the eyes and tell them that you are going to help them find a solution. Operators need solutions. That's why I am such a fanatic over putting operators in HR and not, not people with 20 initials behind their names, but people who have never been an operator, people who can't get to yes, who always get to no. It is not about initials or how many you can accumulate or a PhD in front of your name. It is about, or behind your name, I guess I should say, a DR in front of your name. It is about how you help people make the organization run and how you get them the players on the bus who will make it successful. That is your biggest job. Your biggest job is getting to yes, not getting to no, and learning one more rule that stands in the way of them being successful. So if if you were uh, the chief uh, talent or chief people officer for an organization today and you were looking to bring on some additional uh, team members, how, what, what's the best advice you could give for how to find these rule benders and rule breakers who are going to move the business forward and find out how to get to yes? Well, I'll tell you, operators get to yes. So one of the things that um, I thought was important at JetBlue was to have, for instance, uh, when our team, we took a four-year contract to build JetBlue, and then uh, since that period, I had been on the board until just recently um, for 14 years. And one of the things that I kept pushing was to get an operator as a head of employment, somebody who knows what it looks like to be an A player in the field. So we ended up putting a captain, and I think we're the only airline I know of, a captain as a head of talent management. And she is terrific. And I will tell you that I think it matters that you, when you're going to look at the people to put in the job, you ask them to give you examples. If you're going to hire someone in HR, there's one question you have to ask them. Give me an example of a time you broke a rule for an employee. And when they give you one, ask them for another one. If they tell you they never broke a rule for an employee, you better make sure you share them with the competition. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I'm telling you. I love that. That's great. That's great. That's great advice. Uh, So I I, want to get to another topic, and I want to talk about the topic uh, briefly of gender equality. Uh, 
And I'm, I'm curious throughout your career and in senior, the most senior of leadership roles, have you had to deal with a bunch of crap being a woman as opposed to being a man? You know, I think I started banking after grad school. And of course, banking at that time, I mean, we're talking 30 some years ago, um, banking at that time was definitely um, very male dominated. Luckily, I worked for an organization that had a number of senior women, which was very unusual. And we were very close. We worked together, which is not always true. Sometimes women don't tend to support women, but uh, there's some of my best friends are people I've worked with and a boss, a female boss I had in banking that helped me um, achieve great. Actually, she pushed me to the point to where I became one of the youngest officers in the organization. But I always built really good mentor um, mentoring mentors from both the male and female um, leaders of the organization. Yeah. And I learned a lot and I never felt like I wasn't equal in pay, but I didn't care about it. I cared about making sure I was doing the job and that frankly, I, my, my ability to grow was equal to any of the males or others. And it's interesting. Maybe I picked great organizations. Southwest had a large majority of female officers versus male, which was unusual for the airline business. I did not feel it there. JetBlue, we had great number and still do of strong female leaders. So I have been very blessed and at Doubletree too, um, when I, help build double tree hotels. It was very interesting that I've been blessed to work in great organizations where I did not feel that there was gender inequality, but that's because I was pretty pushy probably too. <laughs> I mean, I didn't sit back and uh, they knew that I would be complaining about it if, if it happened. And especially because in my role um, as a people leader, I was able to see that we promoted women. In fact, in banking, we had some of the first senior VPs in Texas that were females um, in the Texas banking world. And we had two of them and it was just terrific. And we were always being written up for that, but we had great talented people who performed. And I think because I was lucky enough to work in some great values-based organizations, um, that was just not part of the equation. They treated everybody pretty equal. If it happened, I just, and if I saw it, of course I brought it up because I was in the people side. And so being the head of people, um, for all those organizations, it was one of those things that if I ever noticed it in a certain department, and that did happen on occasion, if I noticed it, then I would say something about it, and we pretty quickly fixed it and found some people that could fill the roles. But you have to have someone inside that's sort of the watchdog on it, and typically it would be a female. But there also, I had some great um, leaders, some CEOs that always would ask me, do you think um, we're developing our women as well as we can at Southwest, one of the things we did, which is kind of interesting, um, we had a lot of events. Many were golf um, games where we, the men would go, and they were charity events, so they would go. And so I kind of got upset that we weren't, uh, we didn't know how to play golf as well, even though I had taken it in college and all my whole family played it. So I hired an instructor to come for all the female officers, and we learned how to golf. And so all of a sudden we were on the golf tournament. So it's pretty cool. It sounds like a simple thing, but you know, you've got to make sure that we participate at every level. And part of that is uh, when they go play golf, we need to play golf. It's yeah. interesting. I love it now today. Yeah. It, it, but also, I also, one of the things that I watched was to make sure that our salary, we brought people in at the same level 
um, that, and I think that is a a responsibility of who's ever in the people side to make sure because everyone doesn't know what the salaries are, but you know, and make sure that that is not showing up in any of the pay um, grades. And we, every time we were tested, every time we have a federal um, evaluation, we actually did very well. We didn't have problems with it in the organizations I was in. So I think we did a pretty good job of it, but somebody's got to be a watchdog. And I happen to work for CEOs who cared about it. And also um, people, I was watching it and our people in the salary area always watch that, but it does occur. Yeah. And it's something that I certainly don't agree with. And people have really been talking about it now and I'm glad they ought to be making sure that it doesn't happen. Luckily I, was in an area where we made sure that didn't happen. And now I serve on boards and believe me, I watch it. Yeah. Well, and the data, uh, you know, that's certainly, and it seems like it just continues to grow uh, I know. more and more loudly that, you know, you look at the Fortune 500 and the percentage of females that are either at this senior executive table or those even in the boardroom is still, a, a, it's in the teens uh, percentage wise. And so we have a lot of room to grow. A lot of room to grow in that area. We do. And and one thing that you should watch, and when females are on boards, they need to make sure that they watch for that. And they may need to make sure that there is equality. I serve on a couple boards now, and I will tell you, um, one's healthcare. And I will say to you that we have as strong a women uh, coming up behind the chancellor as we do, and as large a number, I believe, as the men. We also have uh, who are docs and who could take over, very strong females. And we do the same thing in one of the public boards I serve on. We actually have a female we're looking at to be the next CEO potentially as one of the um, potential candidates. So, I mean, when you serve on a board, I would say it's our responsibility um, to make sure that that is not happening in those areas where we can help affect change. So I am very... um, cognizant of the fact that that is a responsibility I have as a board member. And I think every female and even male should make sure that that we do see equality because it is critically important. And obviously it is an issue. Yeah. I think you and I could probably spend a whole nother podcast talking about uh, boards and the composition of boards and how board members are being chosen, but we'll save that for a later time. I want to get to, to one last topic and it, it, uh, it's an interesting one. Uh, I, at least I hope it to be. And I know you're a huge, huge fan of Tony Shea and what uh, he and his team have built at Zappo specifically around an unbelievable culture. I know you've had an opportunity to spend time there. Um, this move that they've made to holacracy uh, over the last couple of years has not been without its challenges. I'm, I'm curious, you know, the early results are what they are. This is certainly not a short term uh, move. I read an article recently that this is simply one step in the process of Tony taking the organization to becoming uh, what's referred to as a teal organization, which is essentially self-managed uh, completely. Um, what's your take on what Zappos is doing, the the, the trail they're blazing, uh, and what the future of, of management and what business looks like? First of all, I believe that we all have to try to, to create organizations that in the future will be the ones that, that we all want to emulate. And to do that, it requires change. So trying Holacracy was probably uh, something that Tony wanted to try. He was one of the, obviously one of the first to try it. I, I, from the inception and from learning about it, when I was actually there talking to the people, frankly, in the people side, they were very concerned. And 
why they were concerned, and I think the real problem with holacracy is anytime we make these changes, if we do it and test it a little bit and then see if we don't want to perhaps, and we do this a lot at JetBlue and in other organizations, and then see if we don't want to adjust it to fit. Instead of doing away with all of the layers of management, with the exception of the top and a few in between, if we had done it in a way that got people engaged before we announce it, I believe that any time we have change, get people engaged before because your opportunity to be successful is much higher. Sure. When I talked to the younger people in that population before they implemented it, and I particularly talked to recruiters at, at uh, Zappos, they said what's going to happen is all these young people, and they are some of them, we are not going to have any place to go in this organization. All of a sudden, all the levels we hope to achieve and we have achieved over the years because they had a huge promote from within policy, mm -hmm. which I totally believe in. They said, and this is really funny because they said it before it happened. They said, we're going to lose people because of it. And they did. And when I talked to the individual who's now the controller for Tony, who is the son of uh, Sherry, who Sherry Roberts, who's our office manager, he said the same thing. He said, people are still calling me for advice. I've moved over with Tony to the downtown project, but they're calling me with advice because they have no one to ask questions of. Young people want to be developed, want to have someone to show them the way and want to learn and want to have a place to go. Mm -hmm. So Tony will find a way to do that because I totally agree that he is one of the to me, a great example of leadership. Yep. And I totally believe he will find a way to adjust this, whether it's Teal or whether it's a third um, evolution of this. But I'm glad, A, that he's trying new and making an effort to really think differently yep. because the old school organization does not work any longer. And to me, we should all be thinking differently. How we do it is critical that we involve people from the outset that are going to be um, part of the change. Yep. And I think young people are more open to change than others. But I think listening to them before we decide probably would help us do it and roll it out in a way that might be more effective. I'm just guessing at this. But having been there just before and then after, it's very interesting. I do have an opinion, and that is that it's not necessarily bad. I don't believe we need all these layers at all of leaders, but I do believe we need a place for people to go. Yep. Yeah. And I and I do believe that how we do it is critically important. Well, and you know, thank goodness for Tony and his vision and courage to to yes. to, to really push the envelope and to be on the forefront Absolutely. of this change. And it'll teach other organizations around the world of how to do this uh, in the most successful way. And uh, right. Tony should be commended as well as the entire team there for for doing what they're doing. That's great. That's great. I love it. And I bet they'll come up with an even better model and probably right? even then again, another one. Yep. <laughs> Absolutely. I love them. And I, I love that they're trying things and I love that um, they're learning from them. See, it's not that all change ends up being successful. It's what we learn from it and go on to another model that makes us more successful, in my opinion. Yep. Yep. I love it. So your book, for those uh, who are listening that want to dig in, begin uh, the process of creating a values-based culture. What's the best way? Is Amazon the best way? Is there is there a shortcut somehow for them to get access to the book or is that the best way? 
Amazon, if you want large numbers, Amazon limits the number um, built on values. But there is a CEO reads. You can get large numbers from them, or we can help facilitate it through my office. They also have them at most of the Barnes and Nobles, but not all of them. Some have run out of them. This is a second printing, and they're thinking about another one. So we'll see. But um, they they actually you can easily get it on Amazon. It's just that they only let you get three or four. So we've had CEOs call us that want it for their whole teams, so and we help facilitate that. Gotcha. And that's at our office at People Inc. in Albuquerque. And so if people, so if CEOs and other leaders want to get in touch with you or members of your team, is that the best way to go about doing that? The peopleinc.com website? Right. Okay. And for those of you out there that uh, want to take that next step, it's peopleinc.com, peopleinc.com. Well, Anne, this has just been fantastic. Uh, it's always such a pleasure to chat with you. You've been such a pioneer in the people and talent space throughout your entire career uh, and in the leadership space. And uh, giving this much of your time to us is just a gift. And I can't thank you enough. It's just, it's been awesome. Anytime. I love what you all do. It's all about purpose. I appreciate it, Anne. Thank you so much. We'll, uh, we'll certainly be chatting with you sometime soon. Okay. All right. Have thanks. a great week. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Until next time, thank you for listening, folks. You can obtain a transcribed version of this show and hear more interviews from the Built on Purpose podcast on our website, yscouts.com forward slash podcast. There were quite a few questions I didn't have the opportunity to address during my time with Anne. I'm guessing you may have a burning question or two as well. Anne is gracious enough and has agreed to answer any further questions from our listeners. So please drop me a line at brian at yscouts.com with your questions and I'll forward them on to Anne. If you enjoyed Anne's interview, there are several others I think you'll dig as well. Megan French Dunbar, co-founder of Conscious Company Magazine, Michelle Geelan, author of Broadcasting Happiness, and Mickey Agrawal, author of Do Cool Shit are just a few of the many episodes you can find at yscouts.com forward slash podcast. I promise more great interviews are on the way. Until next time, thanks again for listening. Music.